Dear Father, thank you for all the blessing you have poured out on us, uh, undeserved as grace always is. It always is magnified in our own hearts as we see it poured out in such immeasurable ways, Father. It seems the more grace you give us, the more we realize we just aren't worth it. But thank you, Father, that you give it to us anyway. And you use us, you use weak things, you say, because when we are useful to you in that way, it magnifies your glory. For who could look at us and what we've done in the last year or more and say, well, of course, that's what happened. They're so smart. They're so strong. They're so talented. No, Father, that's not what people say. They say, those people are blessed. And we thank you, Father, for that blessing. We thank you for a church that cares to minister to one another in the truth and in the spirit that you've given us. And Lord, let tonight be another opportunity to minister. You first ministering to us in our hearts by the spirit through your word. We acknowledge it as yours. We affirm it as true. And Father, we commit ourselves yet again to obeying it. And also, Father, let us minister to one another as we learn it. For this is not an exercise in puffing up ourselves or in filling our head with knowledge, Father. This is an endeavor that seeks to know you and ultimately to be like you. Give us that blessing most of all, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in Matthew 11, in verse 16. Jesus is about to be rejected by his people. In fact, you could divide the Gospel of Matthew roughly into halves. And chapter 1 through 12, the first half, is the time in which Jesus walks the earth explaining his purpose, declaring the kingdom, demonstrating his power and his truth to the claims that he makes, teaching with power, teaching with authority. And then after chapter 12, everything changes in this gospel. Chapter 13 and onward is the second half of this book. And in chapter 13 and onward, a lot of what we hear in the first half of the book changes. And I'll tell you what changes when we get there. But what is the dividing point all about? Why does it change in chapter 12? Why is the second half so different? Well, in a word, because of rejection. Chapter 12 is the moment when Jesus is formally and irrevocably rejected by his people Israel, that generation of Israel. And in some cases, rejection is easy to understand. There was a situation where three brothers married each a different woman. The first one married a woman from Alabama, and he said to her soon after they got married, when I get back from work today, I want the house to be clean and tidy. And he didn't see any changes on the first day, but on the second day, the house was clean and tidy. The second brother married a a woman from California. Now, in his case, he said, when I get back from work, I want to see the house clean. But he added, I want to have the laundry done and my dinner made. And on the first day, he didn't see any changes. Second day, he didn't see any changes either. Third day, though, he got what he asked. Third brother married a woman from Texas. You see where I'm going. He said, when I get back from work, I want the house clean, laundry done. I want my dinner made, kids in bed, quiet. I want a beer on the table. I want football on the screen. Well, on the first day, he didn't see anything. Neither did he see anything on the second day. He couldn't see anything on the third day either. By the fourth day, the swelling had gone down a little bit in the right eye, and he could. He had enough use of his hand, he could make himself a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes rejection is really easy to understand, but not in Jesus' case. Uh, we've talked about this already, and, and frankly, I would tell you if we did not know where this story was going, if you didn't know the end already, I suppose you would be shocked to discover that at the end of all of this, Jesus ends up getting rejected by his own people and put on a cross. 
Because everything we've seen him doing up through this point in Matthew's gospel would have led us to believe that who could reject him? Even from a skeptic's point of view, how could you reject him? He's been performing miracles that are self-evident proof of God. He has been teaching with authority that no one can challenge. He's sinless in his own behavior. And yet, Israel rejects him. That rejection is so surprising, in fact, I think it could lead Matthew's readers to suppose that maybe the Jewish authorities had some basis for that rejection. Maybe there was some flaw in Christ's case. Perhaps he wasn't the Messiah. Maybe that's why Israel rejected him, because certainly that's what the religious leaders wanted people to believe. And it doesn't seem to have any other good explanation. I think Matthew anticipated that his readers might have that concern. And so at the point we're at now in the Gospel of Matthew, he is spending considerable time explaining to us why it is, how it is that Israel rejected their Messiah when he came to them. And Matthew gives us this explanation across two chapters, 11 and 12. And of course, we're in 11 now. And in 11, what Matthew's focused on is the first of two primary causes for the rejection of Jesus by Israel. The first of those in chapter 11 is the hard hearts of the people of Israel and of their leadership. And then the second reason, which we get to in chapter 12, is Christ's refusal to play along with the rabbinical system of that day. And we'll look at that one when we get there. But even in today's chapter, chapter 11, even in what we're going to study today, you're going to begin to see evidence of number two a little bit. All right, so at the end of last week's teaching, we had Jesus castigating the crowds when he was there because they were pursuing John the Baptist and now Christ for cynical, selfish reasons. And then he ended in that castigation with that provocative statement we read last week in verse 14. He says that had Israel received John's testimony concerning Christ, that he was the Messiah, had they received that, then Jesus says, John could have been your Elijah, so to speak. Jesus was referring to the Bible's promise that the prophet Elijah, the actual guy, you know, the historical guy, he will come back to earth at a time in in the future when God appoints. He will return to Israel shortly before the Messiah comes to set up his kingdom. That's the promise in Malachi chapter 4. So now we know John the Baptist was not Elijah. John the Baptist himself says so in, in the Gospel of John. He says, I'm not Elijah. But John was a different kind of forerunner. John was the guy that Isaiah promised would come before the Messiah's initial arrival. So John marks the Messiah's first coming. Elijah will mark the Messiah's second coming. But here's what Jesus just said to the people. He said to the people that had you believed John, we wouldn't need Elijah. That in other words, had Israel received their Messiah in his first coming, there would have been no need for a second coming in the sense that he wouldn't have had to leave. He still would have had to go to the cross. He still would have had to have died, spent three days in the grave, come back, and then he would have sat on the throne and we'd have had the kingdom. There wouldn't need to be 2,000 plus years of waiting in between. Why do we have that time in between? Because they rejected him. And Jesus said, had they received him as their Messiah, then they would have received the promises of the kingdom. So it goes like this. Receive John, you would have received me. Receive me, you would have received the kingdom. So in that sense, he's saying, if you were willing to receive John, you wouldn't have needed Elijah. But as it was, you ignored John, and as a result, you received neither him, nor me, nor the kingdom. So in verse 15, which is the final verse we read last week, Jesus issues that call. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Quick poll. How many of you have heard that before in the Bible? Right? Do you know this is the first time it appears in Matthew's Gospel? And he's the one who uses it the most. It's all over his Gospel. But here you have it for the very first time. Why is this the first time? It's Jesus' way of saying, in my words, I know not all of you accept what I am saying, so I am speaking to those who are truly listening. 
That's what he's saying in so many words. But until now, he hasn't had need to use those words because he's been speaking publicly to the people of Israel as a whole, saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Or, in other words, I'm your king, have me if you will. And he's been demonstrating that his words are trustworthy by what he's done, by what he's uh, said. But because he's been offering the kingdom in that open, sincere way, with no conditions to the nation... There was no reason for him to be selective. He didn't have to say, oh, but only for those who hear. It was a genuine offer to everyone. But it's an all or nothing deal. Unless all Israel received him, all Israel does not get the kingdom. There's no such thing as a kingdom for one person and not another. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't set up the kingdom on earth and only have it for some people. It's either here or it's not. And it doesn't show up until all Israel receives him. Well, all Israel didn't receive him. So he left. What do you think the condition is then for his return? We'll come back to that. But for now, what you get a sense of from verse 15 is this. The tide is turning. The time of the open offer of the kingdom is expiring. The chance for Israel to have their kingdom is about to end. Jesus, knowing this, has already begun, even in this verse, to acknowledge in a subtle way that it's now going to be about individuals coming, not nation. This movement from the kingdom proposal, as we've said before, to the kingdom program. Again, just to remind you guys, the kingdom goes through four stages in development in Scripture. It started as a promise to the patriarchs. It became a proposal to Israel when Jesus came to them. When they rejected that proposal, it shifted to a program of recruiting citizens for the future kingdom. And then in one day to come, it will become a place on earth when Jesus returns. So you go from promise to proposal to program to place. This is where you see the turn from proposal to program. The proposal was for all Israel. A program is for selective individuals, those who agree with it. And so we see that shift. So knowing he's preaching now until he dies to a people who for the most part are not listening, apart from a remnant, he now begins to explain the consequences of rejection, which carries us all the way into 12. But for tonight, the next passage begins in 16. Pick up there with me as we read. It says here, But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Rhetorically, he's asking this crowd, what do I compare you to? What do I compare this generation of Israel to? What he's searching for is a comparison that can illustrate the heart of this entire generation of Israel. When I say generation now, what we're talking about is the group of people who were Israel in his day, contemporaneously. Not all Israel for all time, but the ones who lived on earth during that time are the ones in view here. And he lands on a comparison that would have been familiar to anyone in that day. They would have known this this comparison. In fact, I think it's still common today. Children playing in a marketplace. Most towns in that day and in Judea were small, little villages. If you were to go back in time and see what they look like today, it would be like the size of most of our our little neighborhood associations. Maybe smaller than that. You know, it's just this tiny little center of life. And the center of that town was always a place of hustle and bustle and, and commerce. It was the marketplace square. And because it was the center of life, it attracted everyone, old and young. You'd even find the very youngest, the ones who could barely walk, would wander out and play in the square. And kids would have games they play together. Only in this day, the games didn't involve Wi-Fi or, or Internet or batteries or whatever. 
But it's always been the same with kids. Imagination games. Role-playing games. We've all done it in some place at time. And they always have a similar pattern. And I don't think that the life of a child in that day fundamentally was that much different than the kids we see today in, ter- in terms of this behavior. So it starts usually with a kid proposing a storyline. Uh, cops and robbers, as you might hear today, or something like that. And then the rest of the children who buy into that, they all join in by playing some part, some role. Right? We all know how this works. So even though the storyline is not scripted in any specific way, the group understands how this is supposed to go, more or less, and that everyone has a part to play and everyone knows how that part works. And everyone's supposed to do this cooperatively. And if they do it together, it's fun. Everyone has a good time. But what if you have a child in the group that refuses to play their part? And it's almost always that, right? I don't want to be a cop. I want to be a robber. (laughs) If that person persists in that, it just ruins the fun. You can't work with that. Right? You can't work with that. I tell that to Toby all the time. I can't work with that. (laughs) And if that goes on, what do you see happening? Peer pressure. Come on, you can do it. It's all right. You can be the cop next time. Whatever we tell them. Something to get the child to play along with the rest of the game. And if everyone plays their part, it works. All right, Jesus compares Israel's treatment of John, and then later himself, to that of children complaining that there's a child among them who broke the rules of their pretend game that they like to play together. The children, in his case, he says, children that that were playing a flute for the group, the children that played the flute said, oh, but this child didn't dance when I played the flute. Or they sang a dirge. A dirge is a funeral song, like uh, like you would sing at somebody's funeral. But, But the children didn't mourn. So what he's describing is, for lack of a better term, what he's describing is an ancient version of Simon Says. Now that's a game we all remember, right? Simon Says. So you have a leader in command a certain action, and then everyone in the group is supposed to respond in a certain fashion to that command, right? But the fun of Simon Says is that the leader tries to trip you up. That's the fun of it. The fun of it is you're going to try to be caught. So the leader will issue instructions that are hard to move from. They try to move you to something that you can't do easily unless you're really paying attention. And that's their way of having fun in the, in the whole thing. So in this case, he says, a child p- pretends to play a flute. That's your signal to dance like you're happy. Then he would snap into a funeral dirge, and you're supposed to go from happy to sad really fast. That's the idea. Trip them up. Make them do something wrong. What Jesus is saying is, obviously, that the Jewish crowds and their religious leaders are equivalent to the complaining children who are playing flutes and singing songs, which would make John and Jesus then the one child that's standing on the side refusing to play along with their game. Now, religious life in Israel was a lot like Simon Says, in many ways. It was a gigantic game consisting of leaders and followers. And it had a lot of rules, often contradictory rules. And those rules could change at any time. And the followers in that game, which in this case would be Jewish society of Jesus' day, They were constantly being tripped up by the intricacies and the changes and the interpretations and the selective enforcement. And so at any moment, you know, you think you're okay until a Pharisee walks along and says, nope, that violates the Sabbath. That didn't violate the Sabbath last week. Nope, sorry, new rabbinical rule. And later in the Gospels, Jesus even says to the Pharisees, you tie up burdens and you lay them on people's shoulders, though you yourselves are not willing to even lift them with a finger. It was a hypocritical style of weighing people down with silly rules, like Simon says, with the intent that you're going to trip people up and hold them accountable. The rabbis manipulated this. And in fact, that rabbinical system, now we've talked a little bit about this system in past chapters. Remember the Mishnah 
and the rules that came along with the Mishnah. Well, that system evolved over centuries into what became Pharisaic Judaism. Let's call it that, Pharisaic Judaism. It's actually a new religion. It's not Judaism in its historical sense. It's not what God gave Moses at Sinai. It was an entirely new thing invented by the rabbis over centuries. And it started ostensibly with the law of Moses. But once you've covered it up with so many rules and regulations that are rabbinically invented, you can't even see the law anymore. You don't even know what it is anymore. All you know is the rules, the Mishnah. And the rabbis manipulated this system for their own gain. And they protected it at all costs because it was their power center. And so that would mean they would change the rules when necessary in order to catch people in violation, much like the leader of Simon Says. So in verse 18, what Jesus does is he cites examples of how they have been upset at him and John for not playing according to the rules of their little game, and they've changed the rules on them whenever they needed to in order to trip them up. You notice he says that John, in his ministry, he fasted regularly, and he refused to drink wine as part of his ministry. He had a Nazarite vow, I guess. And he set himself apart in the wilderness. We know that story, right? Now, none of those choices are sin. You can do that if you want. It's not wrong. certainly wasn't wrong for John. It's just his choice or God's direction on his life, we should assume. Not only was it not wrong with the law, it wasn't against Pharisaic Judaism either. There was no rabbinical rule that said you cannot fast. For crying out loud, they love to fast. My point is, he was doing nothing wrong by any standard. What did they say? Oh, well, they said... He must be possessed by a demon because what sensible man would live like this? So they take what is piety and they turn it into a problem because it suited them. By the way, we don't have any record of the Pharisees making this critique against John's lifestyle. We just have Jesus' statement, so we certainly believe it. But then you flip it around and Jesus said he ate regularly. He did not fast. He told the Pharisees at one point, he and his disciples don't fast. As long as the bridegroom is present, there's joy, not fasting. And he drank wine. So the Pharisees had to change the rules when they wanted to criticize Jesus. They told the crowd, you can't follow Jesus. He's a drunkard. He eats all the time. That's a complete reversal from what they just criticized John for doing. Because Jesus shows compassion to repentant men and women, they say, oh, he's a friend of sinners. Yeah, he's a friend of sinners. Praise the Lord, he's a friend of sinners. Amen, he's a friend of sinners. But for them, that's indictment. So here again, there is nothing in the law of Moses, nor even in the rabbinical system that said that Jesus was doing anything wrong, but it's how they played the game. They played it to their advantage. When he uses the terms flute and dirge here, he's talking about John and Jesus. They played a flute for John. He didn't want to dance. He was too busy fasting. They played a funeral merge for Jesus. He didn't mourn. He was too busy enjoying life. They blamed both of them for ruining their fun. Now, obviously, Jesus was fighting against these corrupt and hypocritical leaders in his attempt to bring the kingdom to Israel. But the challenge that Jesus faced in winning over Israel went a lot deeper than just the corruption and the hypocrisy of these men. Jesus was fighting hard hearts that were not listening to the Spirit. Instead, the Israel of his day was trapped in a systematic pursuit of self-righteousness in the form of Pharisaic Judaism. For all intents and purposes, the religious practice of Jewish society in that day was a false religion. Pharisaic Judaism is a false religion. It substitutes man-made rules and rituals for a true relationship with God. 
It's false religion, which, by the way, is how every false religion works, including false religions that take a nominally Christian form. In fact, let's just drop the word false there, okay? Because all religion is a substitute for knowing God. All religion. Religion has been defined as man's attempt to reach God through a set of rules or rituals or creeds. And when you see it in someone else, you assume their piety means they possess some insight about God. And sometimes they do, like John the Baptist was pious, and he did. But it's only going to reflect true knowledge if it's accompanied by a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Otherwise, it's just a game. If there's nothing else you learn tonight, learn this. Religion is an elaborate game played by people who don't know God. A true saving relationship with God, with your Creator, comes only because God reveals Himself to you by His Spirit. The Bible says a true knowledge of God must come from above. That is, God must reveal Himself to a person, or else that person will not find God. And when God's revelation concerning Himself is absent in a person's life, all they have left is religion, if they have any interest in it at all. That's it. I know this from personal experience, friends. I'm not just talking about what I find in the Bible, though we're going to look more at that here in a minute. But even as a a bit of introduction, I grew up an unbeliever. I, I became a believer in my late, late 20s. I don't even know the exact date, but roughly 29. But I grew up in a family that was religious to an extent. They practiced a certain religion, Catholicism in their case. And growing up in a Catholic family makes you what? Catholic. Right? makes you, to some extent, religiously Catholic. It puts you in a religion. And with a religion came rules and rituals. If you don't have revelation from God concerning who He is, all you have is that, and you don't know the difference. You don't know the difference. It's the same thing. As far as you know, that is what God is. Once you have the revelation of God, once He says, No, Steve, here's who I really am. Here here you find me in my word. Now you know me truly. The Spirit awakens you. All of a sudden you can see what you're in the middle of and you realize, this isn't God. This is somebody's invention. This is a little man-made game. It's It's a hoax. Now I know the truth. And you may have woken up out of a Baptist church experience. You may have woken up out of a Presbyterian. I'm not saying those places are bad. Or I'm saying... Before you know who God is, it don't matter what religion you attach yourself to. It's not a substitute for relationship. It's just a game of Simon Says. It is a group of people agreeing to follow a leader in an elaborate game. And you hate it if someone does not play along. If you've ever come out of an experience like I did, think about how much you hated it when other people didn't play along. If you were invested in it, you did not like other people who took it less seriously. Because if enough people stop playing, everyone wakes up to the reality that it's all a game. And you realize it was devoid of truth and purpose because it operated without divine revelation. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? It's in Genesis chapter 11. And in chapter 11, you learn this. I'm just going to read two verses. Chapter 11, verse 4. It's it's a group of, of ungodly humanity at the earliest outset of our histories, humanity's history. And they come together. This is verse 4 of chapter 11, Genesis. They say, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And you know what the next verse says? Verse 5. The Lord 
came down to see the city, which was in the tower, and he had to get down because it was really, he had to come down and see. You see the irony and the stupidity of all of that? People saying, we're going to reach God with our tower. And God's saying, I can't barely see it. I've got to go down there. I can't see this tower. How are they going to get down to me? It's, it's intentionally. So I think those two verses together are, the, are the, the best irony you can find in the Bible sandwiched right next to each other because it highlights, it mocks the ridiculous notion that we can reach God, that we can reach heaven with a brick, with a stack of bricks. You take all the stack of bricks you want, you ain't going to get anywhere close to heaven. Or much less God. People were engaged in a game of Simon Says, and their leader, a man called Nimrod, was directing them in this false religion. How did God respond to that? Do you know how the story ends? Babel, right? He scrambles the language of that group of humanity so that no one could understand each other any longer. Do you know how to kill a game of Simon Says? Make it so you can't understand anyone. Well, that's what he did. The follow the leader game went to zero overnight. They all disbanded. Game over. That's what Jesus is confronting here. If you want a quick answer out of this chapter anyway, for how Jesus was unable to convince Israel that he was their Messiah, it's because a false religion stood in the way. And it's no wonder that the Pharisees oppose him because they're the leaders. They don't want to see their game fall apart. But now what you're learning is it's neither a surprise that the Jewish people aligned with their leaders. Because here's what Jesus was offering. He was offering them this new and better relationship with the God of Israel. But, and here's the key, only a relationship with Christ could solve their key problem. What was their key problem? What was the problem that no mere religion could ever solve? The problem that was separating them from God in the first place. Three-letter word. Sin. Right? And there is no solution for sin apart from a faith in Christ's death on the cross which pays your price for sin. There's no other solution, right? You cannot put your trust in rituals or or rules sufficient to solve that problem. That's the relationship he was offering. He was offering them himself as a solution to a sin problem which they didn't think they had. You ever tried to sell something to someone who doesn't want it? Or doesn't think they need it? That was essentially his problem. If they were going to receive the kingdom and him as their king, they first had to put him in place of the leadership they were already under. They had to say to the Pharisees and the Pharisaic movement, we don't need you. We don't want your leadership. We don't need your rules. We have our Messiah. He solves our sin problem all on his own. We don't need to follow rules. And he's ready to give us the kingdom right now. He's in. You're out. That's what he was having them do. That is, if they wanted their kingdom. That meant the end of the Pharisees, Simon says, game. So again, it's no wonder that they didn't want it to end, that the Pharisees didn't want it to end. Their hearts were, were, were certainly invested in their power and in their prestige. But now you see that the people themselves were not interested in that either because, and here's the key, their hearts were invested in that system. If you've come out of a religion like I did, if you've come out of a system of rules and ritual before you knew Jesus, you know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) Once someone gets hooked into the ritual and rules of a religion, it can be almost impossible to get them out of that. To free them from that. Because people will assume things. They assume that all the pomp and the circumstance, and we like to say the smells and the bells, you know, all of that stuff is proof that there's a man behind the curtain. There has to be, right? I mean, 
And, and if you tell them, nope, sorry, it's all a hoax, it's all a game, it's all false, it's all made up, they rebel at that suggestion because that makes them feel like they've been duped. And the most common thing I'll hear from someone is say, well, if you're right, then what about my mom who died in that religion or my dad who died in that religion? What are you saying about them? Where are they right now? You see how the train of thought just goes? They say, well, wait a minute. What are the consequences then of me being duped? And I can't deal with those consequences. I cannot accept those consequences. That's what happens when man-made religion comes face-to-face with the living God. When those two things come into contact, apart from the touch of God's hand on their heart, all you have at that point is rebellion and sin. That's why Jesus called Israel to repent. You notice we always talk about repent and believe, repent and believe. Do you know what the repent part really is about? If you've ever thought that Jesus was suggesting we have to enumerate all the sins of our life, somehow, you know, saying sorry for all the stuff we've done, and then we can believe. Friends, I dare you to try to do that. You know, you'd never finish. What's the point? It could never happen. I don't even remember them, right? It's not what repent means. Repent is not that. That's, I like to say that's repent with a small r. That's the repent you do after you come to faith. That's sanctification. That's saying sorry because you feel convicted because you want to do better. Right? That's a daily walk with Christ. But before you know him, what is the repent of repent and believe? That's capital R, repent. That's the repentance that Jesus was calling Israel to, to experience here. It's a repentance of self-righteousness. It's a repentance of religion. It's a repentance of human works in place of relationship. It's saying no to the world and yes to God. No to a life apart from Him. Yes to following Him. No to my own way to heaven. Yes to giving it all to Jesus. It's about repenting from who you were to something better. It's not based on individual behaviors. It's based on your heart, your outlook, your whole mindset. It's repent so that you can believe. It's forsaking all other gods, all religion, for the opportunity to enter into a relationship with the one true living God. That's what he's asking of Israel. And friends, not everyone will make that trip. Which is why Jesus said, let him who have ears to hear, hear. Right? Unsaved humanity prefers religion over relationships. You know why? Because religion is visible. Religion is tangible. Religion is ultimately predictable and controllable. And a relationship with God is none of those things. Which is scary for a heart especially a heart that hasn't been quickened by the Spirit yet. It's scary to think about that stuff. And if I remember this distinctly. Before I became a believer, when I was exposed to someone who was, I thought they were the weirdest people. They were so weird. They were just sort of authentic in a way that scared me. They used terms like born again. I'm like, what does that mean? Uh, if anybody else have that experience where people were just freaking you out because, I mean, you have to be an adult unbeliever, I guess, and then have been saved as an adult probably to have that experience. But I had that. And I just remember thinking, those people are just nuts. But even true Christians now, those of us who know the Lord, we are susceptible to the attraction of religion over relationship. We have a word for that, right? We call it what? Legalism. Legalism. And it is pervasive in the church, I think. And his legalism happens this way. It happens anytime we try to impose religion on top of the relationship that we already have with Christ. Now, if you're hearing the word religion and you're starting to get confused because you think, well, isn't this what we're doing right now, religion? It depends. It depends on why you're here and why you're doing what you're doing. Are you here because the rules say you're supposed to be here? Religion. Stop it. Don't come anymore. That's not helping me. God doesn't need you. I don't want you. 
Not for that reason. Right? Because it's, it's not real. Now, are you here because you have a relationship with Christ and you long to be in His presence and the company of the believers that, that share that view? Because you want to worship? Because you want to hear His word? Because this is what excites you? Because a Saturday night that rolls around without this feels empty? All right, well, then you should be here. That's the difference between relationship and rules. I would tell you as a comparison, try having a marriage relationship based on rules and not relationship and you're headed to divorce court. Because you don't want that. No one does. In other words, if it was only about, I have this experience with this other person based entirely on what they tell me to do and what I tell them to do, and we have no other interest in each other except that we want to keep each other's rules, that's not marriage, right? It's not a good marriage. And that's the kind of relationship or the kind of experience you see people in churches having all the time, and they feel guilt as the primary expression of that experience. Guilt. Guilt when they're not there. Guilt when they are there and they, they, they feel bad for being there and they feel bad about being feeling bad. Catholics in the room are like, oh yeah, I know that. I remember that. <laughs> it's like this crazy thing you do in your mind like, oh, I'm in church, I'm clicking that box and oh, I hate being here. Oh, that's a sin. I shouldn't hate being here. Now I feel bad that I hated being here. Now I should be... It's Simon Says, right? Now, legalists will tell you this. Legalists will tell you that their rituals and their rules are requirements because they come along with the relationship. But it's not true. You know, Simon Says, don't dance, drink, or chew, or date girls that do, right? That's the way we tend to think of these rules. They just sort of throw them out at us, and we have to follow them because somebody said we have to follow them. And then the funny part, it's just like the Pharisees, when the rules don't agree with us anymore, what do we do? We change them. Well, wait a minute. They're from God. Well, newsflash, God changed his mind. Right? That's how you see so many churches moving now with the culture on social issues that, that the Bible doesn't move on. Right? But it's because those rules are always been simply that. Rules in a big game called religion. Legalism doesn't just rob you of your liberty, friends. It erodes your trust in a relationship. Your dependence in a relationship. It substitutes for that dependence. Over time, a believer who's caught in an attitude of religion will begin to put more importance on rules or on their particular doctrinal perspectives, whatever they hold to be true, than they do on following the Spirit in a relationship with Christ. And at its worst, you'll see churches or entire denominations just move away from relationship altogether, be nothing more than a group of people following a bunch of rules, and it's dead church. Now, of course, let me just put something on the other side of this, because I don't want to make it all sound so one-sided that we run out of here thinking we can do whatever we want. There is, of course, structure and rules associated with our relationship with Jesus, right? Biblical Christianity has doctrine. Biblical Christianity has particular practices, and even a little ritual, if you want to call communion or baptism a ritual. We have some of that, but here's the key. Everything we do is found in the Word of God, as interpreted by the Holy Spirit. And unlike Simon says, in that game of religion, our rules don't change. Because the Bible does not change. Right? And they are not intended by God to trip us up so as to let Him accuse us or to disqualify us. And for those reasons, they don't take the place of a relationship with God. On the contrary, God's rules, if you want to call that what we're talking about here, God's rules exist to drive us into a deeper, more abiding relationship with Christ. That's the difference. For example, a true Christian should never say, 
I know the Bible says go left, but our pastor says we should go right. right? You don't follow leaders if they tell you to do something that contradicts the word of God. Can I just say, I mean, if you ever wondered if that would happen in here, it's going to happen. I'm not perfect. When I say the wrong thing, don't do it. There, we solved that problem. Okay. Nor can a believer say, the Spirit tells me this verse means go left, but our denomination says that it means go right. Well, you've got a bad denomination. You need to move on. You don't let denominational rules dictate what the Word of God says. You let the Spirit of God dictate what the Word of God says. Now, for the same reasons, though, you also cannot say, well, I know the Bible says go left, but personally I feel the Spirit saying I should go right. Have you ever heard somebody doing that? If you hear a voice telling you to do something that's against the Bible, that is not the spirit that you are hearing. All right? that's, that's a plain truth. A true abiding relationship with God under the leading of the Spirit remains true to His Word. In fact, when a true believer disobeys the Word of God, they're going to feel conviction as how God deals with that, not comfort. That's what Jesus means at the end of verse 19. When he says, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. He's using a proverb of that day, and it's simple. It just says, our behavior ultimately reveals what we hold to be true. What our wisdom is. Our wisdom, in other words, is vindicated or proven by our deeds. So you may say you believe something about God, that you know something about God, that you have some experience with God. But in the end, end, I'm going to know what's truly in your heart by what you do. Now, Jesus is not giving us a litmus test for salvation here. I don't want it to go that far. That's not what he means. He's just saying, judge your source of truth by how they live. That's what he's saying. So in John's case, or in Jesus' case, what would someone in that day have seen if they looked at their lives and tried to evaluate, do I believe what the Pharisees say about them, or do I believe what they tell me? And Jesus is saying, well, wisdom is vindicated by your deeds. Both men, John and Jesus, they lived upright, and in Jesus' case, sinless lives. They both honored God with what they did in ministry. They both served Him in holiness. They both loved those who came to them. They served those people by teaching them the truth about God. They willingly suffered at the hands of God's enemies. Those were their deeds. So wisdom, in this case, what they said was vindicated. Now, if the crowds had considered each of those men honestly in that regard, they could have easily recognized, well, well, what you guys, you Pharisees, are saying about them is totally off from what I'm seeing. I mean, that makes no sense. I see what I see. And they would have known who to trust. And on the other hand, if they had taken that same standard and applied it to their own leadership, what do you think they would have seen in their lives, right? Hypocrisy and corruption. So when people try to add rules and rituals to your relationship with Jesus, rules that are not biblical, that do not find their source and their command in Scripture. By command, I mean this. Be careful. People can say, look, Paul did this. Peter did this. Therefore, we should do that. Uh Uh-uh. No, that's taking description and making it prescription. We don't do that. David had an affair. Are we supposed to do that? Abraham married three women. Okay for us? That's not how we use the Bible. Unless it says, thou shalt, New Testament or whatever, unless it says to the believer, do this, it's not a command. 
Now, that doesn't mean we can't learn from other things. It doesn't mean there might be some implied way we use what we're learning. But what I am saying is somebody can't say, so-and-so did this, therefore you should do that. That's taking what is description and making it prescription. That's legalism. Because you can always find something in here if you look hard enough, and half of it's bad, right? There's a lot of stories of people doing wrong things in the Bible to teach us a lesson. That doesn't become prescription. So when I say that you are not to add rules to your relationship, what I'm saying is you're not to add stuff that's not clearly meant to be added by God because it says so. Most of the stuff we get saddled with is not here. right? And when you have to sort through all that, you're going to have to sort through multiple voices sometimes, people who offer you contradictory interpretations of the Bible, contradictory truth and all that. Whenever you get into those moments, just remember Simon Says. Just remember that that comparison. Remember, you do not have to dance to someone else's song. Not in order to please God. Your responsibility is to obey the master who bought you. Right? God isn't pleased with ritual for ritual's sake. He certainly doesn't want you thinking you make yourself righteous by following rules. Remember what Jesus told the woman at the well? Another of reference for you. Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus meets the the Samaritan woman at the well. He's alone. His disciples have gone into the city to find food. He's there with her. She's a a woman of, of, of poor reputation, right? And at a point in the conversation, Jesus exposes her sin to her. She's caught off guard. She realizes, ooh, this guy knows things about God. And almost to kind of change the subject a little, she asks him a a Bible question. You know, it's kind of the thing you do when you read somebody who seems to know something about God. You ask him a question. And so we read this in John 4, 20. She says to him, our fathers, speaking of the Samaritans, she says, our fathers worship in this mountain, and you people, the Jews, say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she's asking Jesus, settle that argument for me. And he says, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God be praised he did not say in rules and ritual. The woman asked him to settle that argument, right? She was trapped. Here's how you have to understand her perspective. She was trapped in a false religion. She was trapped in the Samaritan's version of false religion. And she's talking to a Jew thinking he's in the Pharisaic Judaistic camp. And so what mattered for her was sort of settling the argument whose rules are right. That's what she wanted to know. She really wanted to know whose rules are right. I had a question that came to verse-by-verse ministry this week from somebody who asked exactly that question. She used different words, but what she said was, which church has the right rules? You know what I'm going to tell her to do, right? Matthew 11c, go listen. Right? And it's just good timing, but it's tonight's lesson is her answer. Ain't no such thing. Ain't no such thing. No church has the right rules. These are the right rules. Find the church that's closest to this. You're better than most. But that's the point most people have on their mind. Just tell me where I'm supposed to get the right rules. She asked Jesus, what's the right rules? Can you imagine learning that you're worshiping a God you don't know? That's what Jesus says to her first. You worship someone you don't even know. Try that as a starting point when someone says something about religion to you. You know what? You're worshiping a God you don't even know. You better know what you're doing. Jesus did. He says, no, the Jews have the right God as far as that goes. But you notice what he also didn't say? He didn't say the Jews have the right rules. Because they didn't. 
It's not about rules. It's about relationship. And he told her the time had come for true worshipers to find God through relationship, through spirit, that is, through God revealing himself, and through truth, through what he wrote. It's not about what you know, as they say. It's about who you know. We worship God in spirit and truth. We don't worship rules. We don't worship ritual. So here's my commission to you. Here's my exhortation to our church tonight. Don't let your relationship take a back seat to rules or rituals that try to substitute for spirit and truth. And if we're going to be protecting against that, we're going to have to do that together, friends, because we're here tonight and in general to work together to reach a city and beyond, helping them find God through relationship, not through rules, through spirit and in through truth, not through the rituals that constitute regular religion, if you will. All right? And I believe the Lord has a lot of exciting things coming for us as a church. And I, as I mentioned earlier, I, there'll be some things I hope we can talk about in the near future. Things that have the potential to really grow us. And that's exciting. But to whom much is expected, much is required. Or to quote the more familiar wisdom of the day, uh, what is the one you hear in the movies, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Whatever. What I'm saying is this. Growth is a double-edged sword. It can bring new opportunities, but it's going to bring new challenges. One of those challenges is we cannot become so corporate in our approach to church that we become a religion. In our striving to be efficient and to be effective, we can't let that turn into a business, into a corporate entity in which we conduct church for people as part of our program of services. What's the point in that? I mean, that's just now you're just playing a game again. It's Simon Says. We need to always remember that we are not here to play a game. We're not here for some religious experience. We're not here to follow some rules and ritual. We're here to enhance our relationship with Christ. If this ain't doing that, tell me when it comes, when it comes, if it comes. Tell me. Because the last thing I want to do is preside over ritual and, and rules. We don't become like first century Israel. That we become so committed to playing a game of religion that you miss the Lord when he comes calling. Let's pray. Father, Thank you, Father, for our relationship with you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your Son and calling us into that relationship. And thank you for freeing us from the burden of trying to build a tower to reach you. In the days of old, they built towers with bricks, Father, and in our own day, we build it with uh, ritual, with rules, with with ways of living and, and doing so that we can feel as though we're getting closer to you, Father. And we know that None of those things happen. We only reach you because you reached us first. We only know you because you revealed yourself to us. We only have you because Christ died on a cross. And that was enough. That gave us all we needed right there, Father. Thank you for that. And thank you, Father, for reminding us of that. And, Father, should any of us be trapped by rules, by experiences that are not from you, that are causing us to lose the joy we should have in following you, Father, please give us the courage to walk away from those things, wherever they are in our life, to set them aside. Not so that we can pursue our own desires in some selfish game, but rather, Father, so that we can just follow you in whatever you call us to do. And as we give ourselves over to that, Father, confirm in our hearts that we've made the right choice so that we have the courage to keep going and not to fall back to listening to those voices that say rules and rules and rules. And then lastly, Father, thank you for a community of people who share this same desire. Hold us together. Guide us down a path of change, Father. Get us to where we're supposed to be, as only you can. And when we get there, Father, we will praise you and praise you and praise you for all the work you've done, as we do now. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.